0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 129 Berman and Bird on How Jesus Became God, Part 2. In this episode i'll cover dr bird's portion of the debate his long opening statement and then the shorter rebuttal by dr ehrman i'll also cover some of the audience q a of course skipping some of the less interesting questions and the less interesting answers again my goal is to give you the good bits and also to give you a different perspective i do think now then it's time to rumble
0: are you ready to rumble
1: the first thing that Dr. Bird does is he spends a serious amount of time on the first four verses of Paul's letter to the Romans. Here it mentions the gospel of God, which it says, quote, he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the sentence continues on for a couple more verses. In his book, How Jesus Became God, Dr. Ehrman gives a controversial reading of this. Like many scholars, he thinks that Paul is reproducing an earlier saying here. In Dr. Ehrman's view, that earlier saying reflected an adoptionistic Christology on which Jesus becomes the Son of God only at the point of resurrection or resurrection and exaltation. And Dr. Bird spends a lot of his opening statement time arguing that it doesn't need to be taken that way. And he quite correctly argues that, even granting that Paul is reproducing some traditional earlier saying here, how on earth would we know that he added the phrase, in power, as Dr. Ehrman suggests? In Dr. Ehrman's view, this shows emotion from an earlier adoptionistic Christology to a pre-existence Christology that Paul actually believes. And he wants to say this is a kind of smoking gun of that transition. Well, the text says what it says. It's consistent with what Dr. Ehrman says, but it's hard to see how it really supplies any positive support for his hypothesis. And if we're really arguing here about whether the New Testament teaches that Jesus has two natures, or whether it assumes that he's a, quote, mere man, this text just isn't going to decide it's not going to favor one side or the other. He then moves on to Dr. Ehrman's treatment of Mark chapter 1 when Jesus is baptized and a voice from heaven says, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. In Dr. Ehrman's view, this is to be read as adoptionistic. In other words, that Jesus becomes the son at that moment when it's announced to him. Dr. Bird argues that if being called son implies that Jesus is adopted, then he must have been adopted three times, according to the Gospel of Mark. Now, as I expressed in the last episode, I think this adoptionism stuff is kind of a red herring. I think it's kind of a distraction from the real dispute. I don't see the New Testament authors as particularly concerned to nail down a specific point before which Jesus was not the Son of God. And I think they don't care about that because they thought that he was destined to be the Son of God. So in one sense, when he first began to exist, he was the son. In another sense, when he started his messianic ministry, he was then son. In another sense, he wasn't son until his resurrection. In another sense, maybe he's not the son of God until he has come back in power to rule, to actually reign from David's throne. Dr. Ehrman has one good comeback in his rebuttal time to this. He correctly points out that the first time in the Gospel of Mark that there's a voice saying that Jesus is son, it's addressed to him. And so it might be taken as an act of adoption or acceptance or reward or all of those. The other times a voice from heaven calls Jesus' son, it's describing him to somebody else. This is my son, listen to him. So if this is adoption, no, I don't think the other two have to be adoption. In that sense... Point to Dr. Ehrman, but on the more important issue about whether this is teaching adoptionism, I say point to Dr. Bird. I don't think it need be taken that way.
0: Mark's overall Christology creates a certain tension. On the one hand, Jesus is fully and authentically human. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is a good monotheist. He proclaims the kingdom of God, he prays to God, he says, No one is good but God alone and yet there are other passages and actions that make it look as if jesus is somehow paradoxically ambiguously to be identified with the lord with the kurios
1: now we're getting really down to the heart of the matter he says there's a tension in the gospel of mark as he reads it that's theologians speak for an apparent contradiction On the one hand, he's saying the Gospel portrays Jesus as someone other than God, hence, somebody who serves God and prays to God. On the other hand, in his view, it's presenting Jesus as God. So he's someone other than God, and he's not. Now how can this be? On the face of it, that's an uncharitable look at the Gospel according to Mark. We're just saying, hey, I think this guy contradicts himself. Is that the best we can do? Isn't there a coherent, isn't there a consistent message that Mark may have? I think so. I think Mark's point, which he's very explicit about throughout the whole book, is that Jesus is God's Messiah, his special agent his anointed human servant, who plays this very special role in the salvation of the world. But that's not Dr. Bird's view. In Dr. Bird's view, Mark is presenting the idea, or at least hinting at the idea, that Jesus existed before his human life, and even before his conception. He cites a recent book by Dr. Simon Gattercole, Who's was also at this conference, and he heroically argues this thesis about the synoptics. And when I read the book myself, I admired the degree to which Dr. Gathercole tried to get blood from a stone. He tried to get some juice out of something that just couldn't possibly give you any juice. The big evidence that Dr. Gathercole cites that the authors of the synoptics believed in the pre-existence of Jesus is that he repeatedly says, I have come to do this and that. And he says in other literature, angels say that and you're meant to think that they have come from heaven or come from another realm. And so mustn't Jesus have come from another realm? And so mustn't he have existed before he was a human? So that's a part of what Dr. Bird thinks.
0: What I can say a little bit more confidently is that in the Gospel of Mark, Israel's Lord is split between God and Jesus. And and it's that way from the very beginning of the Gospel. The opening of the Gospel has John preparing the way for the Lord, the coming Lord, and the one who comes is none other than Jesus.
1: Now this is what I call the fulfillment fallacy, and it works like this. There's some Old Testament passage that predicts that Yahweh will do thus and such. Then there's a New Testament passage where it says that Jesus did thus and such and it's implying that Jesus fulfilled that prediction about Yahweh. Now here's the fallacy, inferring that Jesus just is Yahweh, that they are numerically one. That of course doesn't follow. Why doesn't it follow? Well, look, we know that Jesus and God aren't numerically one because some things are true of one that aren't true of the other. Which is to say, Jesus and God differ. A thing can't differ from itself, not at one single time or eternally. And so we know because Jesus and God have differed that they are not numerically one. But also we know this from the way that New Testament authors use the Old Testament. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is said to fulfill this prophecy about Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God is with us, is a baby sometime back in the time of Isaiah, or at least long before Jesus' life. The author of Matthew says Jesus fulfills that prophecy. He is not implying that Jesus is the same person as that baby. No, he thinks that this prophecy had another fulfillment in Jesus. And that could be what he thinks here, Or it could be that he thinks that Jesus is God's agent. And so when Jesus comes to Israel, that is God coming through Jesus, through his agent. And this isn't a difficult thought. This is a really easy thought. A few years back, I gave an illustration of this in a blog post. It was entitled, Proving That Bush Equals Sergeant Speedo. And I told this little yarn. The year was 1986. A young George W. Bush visited a psychic. "'You have a great future ahead of you,' said the psychic, peering at the lines in Bush's palm. "'I know. My daddy's vice-president, after all. Some day you will be famous, for you will invade Iraq. "'Beware, O ancient land, for Bush himself is coming to subdue you.' Bush was speechless. He couldn't imagine how this could be, but he never forgot this prediction." later after he became president he told only his close friend and advisor condy rice but she told a friend or two who told a friend or two until the story reached the ears of one sergeant speedo that proves that i am bush he said excitedly what do you mean said one of his friends a fellow military veteran sitting at the bar with him I was the first one across, on the ground, I mean. On March nineteenth, two 2003, we got the order to go, and I was in the lead tank driving it. I was literally the first man across the border. I invaded Iraq. I fulfilled the psychic's expedition. I am Bush. His friends stared intently at Speedo's face. Was he joking? He had shown signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, and they feared that he was showing mental illness. Finally, Corporal OBVS piped up. Speedo, it was Bush who invaded Iraq, not you. You're begging the question, Corporal Vias, shot back Speedo. I just proved that I am Bush. It was truly I who fulfilled that prophecy. Speedo, it's obvious that you are not Bush. Right now, he's in Texas, and you are here in a bar in Maryland. Ha! You're assuming that I, that is George W. Bush, can't be in two places at once. There was another round of awkward blank stares as the beer glasses sat idle on the table captain smart broke the silence suppose he or you can be in two places at once still he's married to laura bush and you are single that's what you think shot speedo anyway what is it to invade iraq i mean we all did it in the sense that we had our boots on the ground there fighting to subdue the country but in another sense the generals who ordered us invaded iraq just by making their orders And perhaps in the highest sense, Bush invaded Iraq, in that, as commander-in-chief, he started the whole thing going. He pulled the trigger, as it were. But the psychic said that Bush himself was coming to subdue the country. He did, via the U.S. military. Not all by himself, not personally. The psychic's prediction about Bush came true, through all of us, yes, and through you, Speedo. But this does nothing to show that you are Bush. We all know that you're not. Smart sat back and took a drink, giving a satisfied look that said, Case closed. Speedo, asked Vias, leaning in, Have you stopped taking your medication? Yes, said Speedo, sheepishly. End scene. No, an ordinary reader is not going to think that Mark is telling us that Jesus is God himself, because Jesus fulfilled this prophecy about Yahweh. You say, well, why not? What we're talking about here is Mark 1, 2, and 3. That's where Isaiah is quoted. There's one coming to prepare a way for the Lord to make his path straight. Then the author tells us that the one preparing the way for the Lord is John the Baptist, Is he saying that Jesus is God? Of course he's not. Just a couple lines up in verse 1, he says, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God isn't God himself. It's someone else. And in verse 11, when Jesus is baptized, he has a voice saying, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. So he's portraying God as someone else who's talking to Jesus. So no, he's not identifying them. It's perverse to think that he's hinting that they're one and the same, right in the middle of making statements that plainly presuppose that the two are numerically different, and also qualitatively different. This author is assuming that Jesus didn't say, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Jesus didn't say that, but the Father did. There's a qualitative difference And so you know that there's a numerical difference between the two of them. But you already knew that because one of them was God and the other one was God's son.
0: when jesus debates with the scribes as to whether the messiah is a son of david jesus quotes psalm 110 of them to the effect that the messiah will be more than an earthly son of david one who has his throne established by yahweh similarly at the trial scene when he asked if he is the son of the blessed one by caiaphas jesus responds with a combination of daniel 7:13 and psalm 110 to the effect that he will share in the lordship of Israel's God. The net effect of sharing Yahweh's throne is that Jesus stands in a relation of near equality with God, to use the language of Joel Marcus. The inference would seem to be Jesus is not just the son of David, but also the son of God, understood as Yahweh's co-regent. We could surmise that the exclusive divinity of the God of Israel is maintained throughout Mark. Mark emphasised more than any other evangelist that there is one God. He stresses that more than any other of the authors. And yet that does not seem to be done at the exclusion of Jesus. If we ask who is the Lord in the gospel of Mark, the paradoxical answer is God and Jesus.
1: Yes, indeed. Psalm 110.1 is a very important Old Testament text for understanding New Testament Christology.
2: Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool.
1: But of course that psalm distinguishes between Yahweh and this other one referred to as my Lord. This doesn't assume or assert or imply their identity but it does assume their distinctness, their numerical distinctness. The Son of God is related in many important ways to God in the New Testament. In that sense, the writers are identifying the Son of God with God. But if you think these writers are smart, you cannot attribute to them that Jesus is numerically the same as God because they also think that Jesus and God differ, that is, differ qualitatively. And things that differ qualitatively are not one and the same thing. This is just a principle of common sense. And Jesus referring to Daniel 7, also correct, also important. And that was viewed at the time as a messianic prophecy. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient
2: one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed.
1: What happens in Daniel 7, in this vision, in the part that we're talking about, the prophet sees the Ancient of Days taking his throne. Who's that? That's obviously Yahweh. And then one like a son of man comes into his presence. Is that God? No. That, on the Messianic interpretation, is the human Messiah. He approaches the Ancient of Days, is led into his presence, and is given authority, glory, and sovereign power, things which, of course, Yahweh doesn't need to be given. And it says, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, and then he gets an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that won't pass away or be destroyed. Now, if you want to call that near equality with Yahweh, like equality of status and power and authority, well, sure, but someone who holds a, quote, mere man Christology, Christology like the Socinians of the 16th and 17th centuries, they can just agree with that. They just believe that an exalted man can be made God's kind of co-regent, or the top ruler under God, and that a being like that can receive worship. What disturbs me is that Dr. Burr doesn't seem to realize the heavy cost of a quote, paradoxical reading of Mark. Paradoxical means apparently contradictory. It means here that Jesus is God himself, and also, by the way, he's not. That's an uncharitable interpretation. It's understanding Mark to be confused. But we don't have to attribute this confusion to Mark. Does it insist that there's one God strongly? Yes, it does. More so than the other Gospels? I don't think so. I think it's at least as strong in the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John. Does it insist on the oneness of God without excluding Jesus? Nonsense. It's clear that this author thinks that the one God is the Father. Jesus teaches his disciples in chapter 11 that they have to forgive their sins so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Obviously, the Father there, that's God himself. Mark 13 Jesus says that no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The Father's God. The Father is assumed there to be all-knowing, and in fact to know more than any of the angels. Oh, and also more than Jesus. Okay, well, if he knows more than Jesus, then Jesus is not omniscient. You have to be omniscient to be the one true God. Okay, well, Jesus isn't the one true God, But we knew that from the very first verse, and then emphatically repeated through the whole book, Jesus is the Son of God, which is to say, the Messiah. And of course, you can be the Messiah and be less than all-knowing. So does this book exclude Jesus from being God? Yes, it does, because it identifies God with the Father. If Jesus were God, then He would be identical to the Father. I mean numerically identical, and of course, therefore, qualitatively identical The book everywhere assumes that Jesus and the Father are numerically two. Well, if they're numerically two, then they can't, the both of them, be identical to God. Things that are identical to the same thing are identical to each other. Again, we're talking numerical identity here. If the Father is God and Jesus is also God, then it logically follows from that that Jesus just is the Father and the Father just is Jesus. They're numerically one. That follows from the reflexivity and the transitivity of numerical identity. But again, it's self-evident that a thing can't differ from itself at any one time or in eternity, and it's clear that the author here is presupposing that Jesus and the Father, that is to say God, differ in various ways. God has a human son. Jesus doesn't have a human son. Okay, but things that qualitatively differ are numerically too. So it's clear that this author thinks that they are numerically too. Does he think that Jesus is divine in some lesser way? For all we've said, maybe so. But if that's what he's saying, you'd expect that to be an explicit part of his message. When the Trinity's podcast continues, a little dash of 2nd and 3rd century history of theology. Next in his statement, Dr. Bird discusses the 2nd century Ebionites or Ebionites. This is a pretty obscure Jewish-Christian group. Many view them as adoptionists. This is an intensely obscure subject, as he points out. This is very difficult to reconstruct what they said because all their writings are lost, and we only have hostile reports which are in various degrees unreliable and much later. But his point is that, in his view, the Ebionites are not adoptionists. He suggests instead that they held to some kind of possession Christology where at a certain point in his life, Jesus was inhabited by some kind of heavenly spirit. A view not unlike some of the Gnostics. And this is the same thing as what Dr. Ehrman calls a separation Christology because some of these Gnostics held that the Christ flew away from Jesus, the man, at the point of or right before Jesus' crucifixion. Is this right? I don't know. He then discusses another obscure subject, which is this guy named Theodotus of Byzantium and the Theodotians. And he suggests that some of Theodotus' followers and not others are the first adoptionists on record. That they are, properly speaking, the first adoptionists who think that Jesus, as a reward for his good behavior, was made the Son of God at some point in his ministry. So, this is in the 190s, presumably, or maybe a little bit after. His point is that adoptionism is only found that late in Christian history and not in the New Testament. Still, I think adoptionism is a distraction. The real question is do you find, quote, mere man Christology in the New Testament, an understanding of the man Jesus on which he is not also divine, on which he does not also have a divine nature? And where, after the New Testament, do you see that sort of understanding of Jesus? To obsess about the precise time at which he became the Son seems like another question, and a less important question, and a question which the New Testament authors really aren't that concerned about. Dr. Ehrman, then, gives a quick rebuttal to a few of Dr. Bird's points.
3: I think it overlooks key evidence. He doesn't mention, for example, these early fragments that we have in the book of Acts, where Paul explicitly says in Acts chapter 13 that what God promised to the fathers, he's now provided to us their children by raising Jesus from the dead. In fulfillment of the psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or he says in Acts chapter 236 that by raising Jesus from the dead, God has made him both Lord and Christ.
1: I don't think Dr. Ehrman had much to say that was new about Romans chapter 1. At one point in his remarks that I didn't play for you, Dr. Bird said that in general, the Jews were allergic to deification, that they generally avoided the idea that a human being might be deified, at least in a sense where people ought to worship that deified human. Here's what Dr. Ehrman says in reply.
3: I would absolutely not say that Jews were allergic to deification. That simply isn't true. I have a 37 page chapter example after example after example of Jews calling beings other than God Almighty God. Moses is called God by Philo. Philo's not allergic to deification. Philo not only thought Moses was God, he thought the Logos, the Word of God was God. He calls the Logos the second God. Two gods. This is a Jewish author. You have this view that that, uh, other beings can be gods in scripture itself. Psalm 45. This is God speaking to the king of Israel. As Michael admits in in his book, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's God speaking to the king. Of course, Solomon was supposed to be the son of God. 2 Samuel verses 7, verses 11 through 14. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. The kings of Israel were understood to be sons of God. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jews were not allergic at all to deification. Deification. There was an early Jewish heresy uh, that, in fact, uh, Michael mentioned, uh, that is studied by a, a, uh, an important American scholar, uh scholar of Judaism, named Alan Siegel, called the Two Powers in Heaven heresy. This is a heresy that was attacked by rabbis in early rabbinic literature. It was called Two Powers in Heaven because the understanding was somebody was sitting next to God on his throne. There is another enthroned figure next to God who was understood in Jewish circles to be a divine being. Christians ended up saying that Jesus is that one sitting next to God. They weren't coming up with something that no Jew had ever heard of. As Alan Siegel himself points out, this was a view that had been around for a long time that many rabbis were uncomfortable with. Just as later Jews continued to be uncomfortable with the claim that Jesus was God. At the end of the day, I'm not sure what Michael thinks about the question that we're talking about. The question is, how is it that Jesus came to be thought of as God? How did it happen? My view of this is the one that I laid out. I think that the early Christians did not think of Jesus as God during his lifetime. The evidence is pretty clear about that from the Gospels, the earliest Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Nobody calls him God in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They didn't think that. Well, they didn't think it then. When did they start to think it? At the resurrection. The resurrection is what made people start thinking that Jesus was God. And once they started thinking that Jesus was God, they started working out the implications of that. And as they thought more and more about it, their theology developed more and more until you get to to the Council of Nicaea. So I don't know what Michael's alternative to that is. But uh, maybe at some point he'll be able to tell us
1: there's a little sting to that last remark in that Dr. Byrd hasn't really explained in what sense he wants to grant that there is significant development in mainstream Christian understanding of Jesus. I think he wants to say that the development is just in terms of language, but he does want to say that even in the earliest gospel, the writer of that gospel thinks that Jesus is God and also that he's not. A couple of quick points about what Dr. Ehrman is doing there. One point is that, conveniently, he's leaving it pretty unclear what he means by deification. It might mean anything from thinking that a man is God himself, or just that he's immortal, or that he has a divine nature but is still less than God, or it might mean something fully trinitarian. It's just unclear. So when you say the Jews were allergic to deification, what do you mean by that? Dr. Byrd is certainly right that they were generally monolaters, ones who worshipped just one, that is Yahweh. And yet Dr. Ehrman is right that in pre-Christian Jewish literature, there were people who speculate about various humans being raised up to heaven or to a quasi-divine status, but still under God. And note one other thing he's doing. He's falsely assuming that in biblical times, the only reason why you would address somebody as God or call them God or a God is because you thought that they had a divine nature, the kind of divinity that the one true God has. This is not so. The ancient usage is much more flexible. So just because you see some human being addressed as God or called God or a God, you shouldn't leap to the conclusion that they have a divine nature that they're divine in the way that the one true God is divine, or really that they're anything more than a very blessed human. And we also have to keep in mind that spirits like angels are referred to as Elohim in Biblical Hebrew, as gods. God is one of the Elohim, but he's also unique among them. Unique in being the one unoriginated source of all else, being the creator of the heavens and the earth and the person who is in charge of the flow of history. It is clear in his book that Dr. Ehrman recognizes that different things can be meant by referring to someone as God. But then at some crucial points, these distinctions seem to slip away and they're not brought onto the stage when I think they should be. The business about the two powers in heaven? Well, that's a big subject. That needs a lot more discussion. Just how similar is that to the way you see Jesus treated in the New Testament. And why exactly is that significant? Well, we can't get into difficult questions like that today. When the Trinity's podcast returns, a few bits of the Q&A session. first really good question from the audience, the questioner asks Dr. Ehrman, does he think that the gospel according to John, the fourth gospel, is basically late and unreliable? And if so, how does he try to separate the reliable from the unreliable in the gospels? Here's a part of his answer.
3: In the gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly makes divine claims for himself, claims found only in the gospel of John. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am claiming the name of God for himself. And the Jews know what he's saying because they take up stones to stone him to death. That's John eight fifty eight, John ten thirty. I and the Father are one. Once more, the Jews break out the stones. Jesus tells his disciples that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is claiming to be a divine being in the Gospel of John. There is no doubt about that.
1: Oh, yes, there is. To me, those are three stunning misinterpretations of the Gospel according to John. All of these passages have been addressed in various previous episodes of the Trinity's podcast, and I can't recount all the interpretive arguments here. But just to recap my conclusions, in John 8:58, Jesus is not claiming the divine name, somehow implying that he's God. What he's saying is that Abraham foresaw that he was the one, that he's the Messiah. In John 10:30, when he says the Father and I are one, he's not saying that they're one being not saying that they're ontologically equal in some sense, or that they're numerically one. It's clear that in the context, his point is that he and the Father are about the same business, so to speak, one in will. Dr. Dustin Smith, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, forcefully makes this point about John 10.30, and he points out that good and careful interpreters of John don't say what Dr. Ehrman is saying about it here. What about he who's seen me has seen the Father? What, is he saying that he's the Father? No, of course not. The book everywhere distinguishes Jesus from his Father. The Father is Jesus' God in John 20. He's the one true God in John 17. Let's look at the whole book. It is basically a unified composition. And again, notice the weaselly language that Jesus is claiming to be divine. What does that mean? If he's the Son of God, that is the Messiah, does that make him divine? Is he claiming to have a little extra something to be divine in some sense? Or is he claiming to be the one God of Israel? I would say that it's clear in the Gospel of John that that's not what's going on. And to my surprise, Dr. Ehrman casually quotes Jesus' Jewish opponents as understanding what he's up to. This is a huge mistake in interpreting John. Quote, the Jews, in the middle of the Gospel of John, They're almost like theological clowns. They're reacting constantly. They're overreacting constantly and missing the point of his message. What do I have to go back into my mother? What is this guy saying? We have to become cannibals and eat his flesh. They're portrayed by this gospel writer as spiritually blind and unable to see the real point of Jesus' message. It's to your peril when you're interpreting the gospel according to John to say, see, the Jews get it. They don't get it. There's a major theme in the middle of the book. Dr. Ehrman's a good scholar. He's better on some things than others, like any human being. But interpreting John is not one of his strong points. Honestly, it seems to me like he hasn't re-examined some of his readings of the Gospel of John since what he would call his fundamentalist days. In any case, he says, yes, he does think the Gospel according to John is late and legendary, and he does think that the synoptic Gospels are somewhat more reliable. It's convenient for Dr. Ehrman's thesis that there's this massive development in Christology. It's convenient for that thesis that the fourth gospel is wildly different in what it says about Jesus than the synoptics. I do think he's right, though, that the synoptics do not teach that Jesus is God, or that he's divine in the way that the Father is divine.
3: Here's my view of it. If Jesus went around calling himself God the way John portrays, that would be the most important thing to know about him. Wouldn't it? I mean, what would be more important to know? This man is calling himself God. That would be fundamentally important. If that's the case, why did Matthew, Mark, and Luke neglect to mention it? They just forgot to bring up that part, that he's calling himself God? How's that possible? It's a stunning silence.
1: The problem with this is that, rightly understood, Jesus never calls himself God or implies that he's God anywhere in the Gospel according to John. They accuse him of this in John 10, but read it closely. Jesus corrects them. He argues that he's not blaspheming because even lesser people than him can be referred to as gods. That in the Old Testament. He's not blaspheming, no. But then he corrects them. He's not claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God's son. We need to parse his argument carefully there. And again, charity is what's needed here. If this author distinguishes Jesus from God repeatedly, as he does, they can't also be identifying Jesus with God. That is, saying that they're numerically one, or implying it. If he is, he's confused. That should be an absolute last resort interpretation. Sometimes people get confused, sure, but we need to strive to understand an author, any author, and all the more so if we think that they're smart or divinely inspired. We need to interpret any author as self-consistent, if that's possible. About the Synoptic Gospels not saying that Jesus is God, Dr. Ehrman really has a strong point with that. Dr. Ehrman's giving an argument from silence, but don't think that he's committing a fallacy. Not all arguments from silence are fallacious. An argument from silence can be perfectly good if it's true that the person would have said that had they believed it. If it's true that they would have said it or written it had they believed it, then given that, the fact that they don't say it or don't write it, that is evidence that they don't believe it. And the more sure we are that they would have mentioned it had they believed it the more sure we are that they didn't believe it this is a strong point imagine that you have a conversation with me on the phone and someone asks you later was dale wearing black socks when you talked with him on the phone yesterday and you say well he didn't mention it yeah but it's unlikely that i would have mentioned it had i been wearing black socks right So since I didn't mention it, you can't draw any conclusion about whether or not I was wearing black socks when I talked on the phone with you. Suppose someone asks you, was Dale's hair literally on fire when he was on the phone with you yesterday? You say, no, I'm pretty sure not. I mean, he never mentioned anything about his hair being on fire. He wasn't screaming. He wasn't saying, help, find a bucket of water. He was just talking as normally in his normal, boring drone. Right. And this is good reasoning. If my hair had been on fire at that time, I would have said something about it, but I didn't say something about it. And so you can infer that my hair was not on fire when I was talking with you on the phone. So if the authors of the synoptics believe that Jesus is God, or that he has a divine nature, or that he's ontologically equal with God, yes, this would have been big, big news. It would have been just as important as the news that he is the Messiah or that he died and was raised from the dead. So they would have been explicit, clear, and emphatic had they believed that Jesus, in some heavy sense, was God. And about the Gospel of John, Dr. Bird chimes in here with a very interesting and I think correct point about it.
0: I think the Gospel of John is a mixture of memory, Midrash, and mysticism. I think there is a historical tradition in John, but it's been pushed through a very thick interpretive layer. So what we get in the Gospel of John, even on the lips of Jesus, is not just the words of Jesus, not just the voice of Jesus, but sometimes the impression that Jesus made on his earliest followers that are incorporated into the narrative. So I think there is a historical tradition in John. There are some who say that John is historically worthless. I wouldn't go that far. But John is different to the synoptics.
1: Another questioner asks Dr. Ehrman, that if it's false that Jews were allergic to humans being deified, why all the hubbub in Mark 14? Isn't this a case of Jews who are allergic to someone making a divine claim? Here's Dr. Ehrman's answer.
3: I'm not saying that every Jew was happy with every person who is thought to be God. In Mark's gospel, the understanding is that the, the Caiaphas and the, the Jewish council is upset that Jesus is apparently making some kind of divine claim for himself. That doesn't mean that they excluded everybody from making a divine claim for himself. This is talking about Jesus here. Moreover, Caiaphas and the council are not representative of all Jews. There is no question that Jews thought that human beings could become divine. Enoch is worshipped as a divine being. Enoch is worshipped as a divine being in the book of First Enoch. Philo calls Moses God. There are other instances of this in Jewish, as I said, I've got 37 pages to book, and I'm just scratching the surface. Yeah. So it's absolutely right that the council is upset with Jesus because they think he's making a divine claim, but that doesn't mean that Jews were always afraid of deifying a human being.
0: I'll just add on that quickly. Uh, Yeah, there's no question that there was a a belief that certain figures like uh, Enoch had been elevated to a certain status, had been assumed into heaven. The main issue, they didn't want that to transgress the orbit of Yahweh's authority or receive the worship, the the, the monolatry, the worship that was exclusively meant to belong to the one God.
1: Another questioner asks, what about Acts 13? If that's not supposed to communicate some kind of adoptionism, then how are we to read it here's what dr bird says
0: in acts 2 never mentions jesus becoming a son so it's not an adoptionist if you're not made a son you can't get adopted yes it does have an exaltation the man jesus is elevated to this uh, great status but that does not mean that's the only thing they believed it doesn't mean that it it's uh you cannot be married to pre-existence or something else. The other thing in Acts 2, if you read the wider context, yes, there's things like pre-existence going on. Uh, all sorts of things are, are being said about Jesus. And in fact, the main emphasis is not the status reversal of Jesus, but rather it's the epistemology. It's that Israel needs to know that the man whom they crucified, God has made, Lord and Messiah. In other words, the main point is God has reversed the verdict that the Judean leaders made about Jesus. Now, when you get to Acts 13, yes, you have this same issue of Jesus' change in status from human Messiah, who is a son of God, into this uh, divine status, but a full-length citation of Psalm 2 does not an adoption make because you can find similar language in Justin Martyr and elsewhere where it's not used in an adoptionist fashion.
3: Yeah, I think the key is the wording in, in that Acts 13 passage. Paul says that the promises were fulfilled, God fulfilled the promises. By raising him from the dead, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So uh, it is the point in that speech where he becomes the son of God. Whether you, you know, whether you want to call that adoptionism or not doesn't really matter to me. If you want to, if you want to call it like Michael as an exaltation, that's fine. If a being is exalted, that means they're raised to a higher level. They can't be already at that high level prior to their exaltation. Otherwise, they're not being exalted. And so that's, that is, that's, that's how I understand the earliest Christology, is that Jesus was uh, put to a higher level. I'm not saying that that's a right Christology. I'm not saying it's a Christology people ought to believe. I'm saying that was the original understanding of the Christians that later developed into other Christological views.
1: Another questioner again presses Dr. Ehrman, isn't Jesus making, quote, a divine claim? End quote. Isn't that why the Jews shout blasphemy in Mark 14?
3: I think it's one of the more confusing passages in the Gospel of Mark because technically speaking, Jesus does not commit a blasphemy. The chief priest asks him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am. Now, that's not a blasphemy. He's saying, yes, I am the Messiah. There's no blasphemy claiming to be the Messiah. Messiah is just a, the future king of Israel. And so that's not a blasphemy. And then he says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's not a blasphemy. That's just, that's just referring to Daniel. That you're going to see what Daniel predicted in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. But then they cry out, blasphemy. So what's the blasphemy? There are a number of theories about this. One theory that I don't accept is that when Jesus says, I am, he's claiming the divine name for himself. I don't think so because the word I am simply means yes. Are you the Messiah? Yes. Uh, I am the Messiah. It's not claiming the divine name. It's just how you say yes. If that's not the blasphemy, what is the blasphemy? I think you have to understand that for Mark, Jesus is the son of man. Jesus is coming back in glory. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and he's coming back as the judge of the earth. It's not that some anonymous Son of Man is coming, Jesus is coming. So when Jesus says you will see the Son of Man, Mark requires you to think Jesus is the Son of Man, the high priest knows that he thinks that, and so the high priest thinks he's claiming to be the Son of Man, and so he calls out blasphemy. So is it a divine claim? Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, it is. Yeah, kind of. But it's not like Jesus saying, I and the Father are one.
1: Now, listening to this, one thing you can't see is that when Dr. Ehrman says that Jesus is making, quote, a divine claim in what he says to the high priest, Dr. Bird made a little victory face and sort of uh, had a little silent celebration, like, ha ha, finally we've got him to concede an important point. But what did he concede? What's this divine claim? Did he concede something that implies that he's God himself? No, that's not what Dr. Ehrman said. Did he concede something that clearly implies that he has a divine nature, as later Catholic tradition says? Well, no. I mean, why couldn't you be the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and not have a divine nature? Why couldn't you come with the clouds of heaven and not have a divine nature? I don't know. Was he making a divine claim in a way that doesn't require having a divine nature well maybe i mean he was saying that he was going to be enthroned and so raised to heaven and made immortal and maybe increased in power and knowledge maybe even goodness yeah but that's the kind of divinity that born-again christians will eventually receive so saying that is consistent with the view that Jesus is, quote, a mere man. So I wonder then if the celebration was premature. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my verdict on this debate. On the whole, who won? Well, Dr. Ehrman was at the top of his game. He doesn't always give a convincing exegesis of passages. He is, I think, pretty clear about what the synoptic gospels are and aren't saying about Jesus. I don't think he made his point about Romans 1. He did correctly point out that you don't obviously need a two natures Christology to make sense of what they say in the book of Acts. Dr. Bird got in some blows, but I don't think he did as well. I don't think he got creamed. It's not his performance or his argument of skills really that are deficient. It's the position. What he does in Chapter Three of the response book to Ehrman, "How God Became Jesus," this is the book that was released on the same day as Dr. Ehrman's "How Jesus Became God." In his chapter, Dr. Bird repeats what to me is currently fashionable and terminally unclear language. Language which is taken from a couple of big-shot scholars in the evangelical world, namely N.T. Wright and Richard Bauckham. So he takes Wright's language, even though Jesus didn't say, hey guys, I'm God, he, quote, knew himself to be God, quote, I mean that he was conscious that in him, the God of Israel was finally returning to Zion, that is, to Jerusalem, end quote. In him. Well, that just sounds like God is working through Jesus. Sometimes N.T. Wright will say as him, which seems to assume that Jesus is God himself. Which is it? To say that Jesus is someone else and also that he's God himself, it's a complete face plant as a way to consistently interpret any one book in the New Testament or to interpret the message of several books together. If that's what those books are saying, it's one against the other, apparently. Or maybe, in Dr. Bird's view, it's one author against himself in the space of a couple sentences, like in Mark chapter 1. That won't fly. That's not how you interpret a source that you take seriously. It is obviously false that anyone is and isn't God in the same sense. If you say, well, no, I don't mean it in the same sense, Okay, well, please then say, what are the two different senses in which someone may be God? Until you've made that distinction, you have not yet put an interpretation on the table. That is not a coherent interpretation. Riffing on this theme from N.T. Wright in his chapter in the book, Dr. Bird says, quote, the lines between divine author and divine agent were becoming blurred, end quote. In other words, in the New Testament, they're starting to confuse together Jesus and God. I don't think so. Jesus is the son of God. He's God's Messiah. Later in his chapter, page 68, Dr. Bird says, quote, the four gospels as a whole agree that Jesus is God's son and that as the son, he is the divine agent par excellence. Sure, I agree with that part, but he continues, and even part of the divine identity, end quote. Part of the divine identity. Is that to say that he's part of God? These are the unclear neologisms of Dr. Richard bockham which I discuss in Trinity's podcast number 13 called On bockham's Bargain, and in a published paper by that same name, which you can easily find online. Dr. Bacham says some things that seem to imply that Jesus is identical to God, that is numerically identical to God, and yet other things that seem to imply that they're not numerically identical, such as that Jesus is a part of God, like a proper part. A proper part of a thing is not identical to the whole thing. So Dr. Bird, in an attempt to defend a fundamentally conservative and high Christology, and yet one that tries to do an end run around most of the traditional Catholic language about Jesus and God. Really, his claims are extremely unclear. So it's not due to any lack of skill that he doesn't do as well as Dr. Ehrman. About interpreting the Gospel of John, I have to disagree strongly with both of these learned professors. But that's another argument for another time. Next week on the Trinity's podcast, there was a six-person panel discussion of all the speakers at the 2016 Greer Heard Point Counterpoint Forum, and some of what's said does push a little further some of the topics we've discussed in Parts 1 and Parts 2. And other things that are said reveal some interesting things, I think, about contemporary theology and contemporary biblical interpretation. And so next week, my comments on some of their remarks. This week's Thinking Music has been Unknown Things by Ribeiro. We got a four-star review and a five-star review in the U.S. iTunes store recently. The four-star review is called I'm Not Good at Titles. It's by Ben the Bible Major. Ben says, I ran across this podcast after searching for interviews with Larry Hurtado. After listening to those episodes, I began from the beginning to better acquaint myself with the aim of the host, Dale Tuggy. Though I am not a philosophical theologian, I am pleased to hear their reasonings and it has given me a lot to consider in my own theology. Tuggy does a great job of letting his guests speak for themselves But Tuggy doesn't let them off the hook when he sees holes in their logic or knows of objections others might want to raise. But I believe Tuggy's critiques demonstrate his sincere desire for this podcast to be a platform for open discussion on a difficult topic. I give this a 4-star rating, partly out of personal preference. Some guests don't gain my full attention partly out of my recent realization that Tuggy hasn't addressed too many philosophers slash theologians slash biblical scholars from the continent or from the global south. I think a fuller perspective would be beneficial, and I hope Dr. Tuggy will consider this. Otherwise, it has been highly beneficial for me, my scholarship, and my faith. I encourage anyone with interest in theology to listen to this podcast. It's good commute fodder. Thanks, Dr. Tuggy. Well, thank you, Ben the Bible Major, and please do send me any guest suggestions. I do consider those. I have kind of a backlog right now, but I don't plan on quitting this anytime soon. We also got a five-star review from a user named Sand Scribbler, whose subject line is, It's like an energy drink for the mind. They say, This is a philosophy slash theology podcast, and it's hosted by a philosophy professor. So you shouldn't be surprised that the subject matter can at times get a little technical. But, if you're curious at all about how to love God with all of your mind, a little thinking couldn't hurt, right? As the tagline suggests, the podcast explores various ways to make sense of the Bible's teachings regarding the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It certainly does that, but it does more Dr. Tuggy keeps the podcast series interesting by also interviewing some of the most important thinkers in the fields of philosophy and theology. He and his guests do not always start with the same assumptions or arrive at the same conclusions, but the interviews themselves are models of civil discourse, friendly, sincere, respectful, charitable, and informative. What this podcast does, it does well. Two enthusiastic thumbs up, or if you prefer, five stars. Sand thank you so much. It's a real pleasure when somebody understands what you're trying to do and appreciates the value of it. Very glad to have you listening. If you'd like to leave a review in the iTunes store for your country, I've got some instructions to help you figure that out at trinities.org slash blog slash review. Thanks for doing that because it'll help other people to find out about the Trinity's podcast. And also, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media like Facebook, Twitter, or Pinterest.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.